This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. My name is Jethro Jones. I'm coming to you from Washington. I'm the host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education and now help schools improve their school cultures and climate. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Today, we'd like to thank our mission partner, Buoyancy Digital, who uh, is a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising safe solution, sales solutions, uh, media buying and organizational training for media publishers, let's chat. For more information on working with Scott and Buoyancy Digital, visit buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Well, good, good happy Thursday to you. This is my well, favorite day of the week, it turns out. Well, I, I absolutely agree. And today, as I, as I tweeted out a little while ago, has been an absolutely terrific lineup of guests. And I would like to uh, welcome uh, our latest guest, Jane Clementi, who is co-founder of the Tyler Clementi Foundation, alongside her husband, Joe. She's someone that I met 10 years ago at uh, the first uh, annual Tyler Clementi Foundation Conference. 
And the Tyler Clemente Foundation was created because she and her husband wanted to make sure that our society learns the consequences of discrimination and bullying as she learned all too personally through the loss of her son. Uh, Jane is a native of New Jersey and a devoted mother of three sons. She speaks passionately to parents and community leaders about the need to not merely accept or tolerate children who come out as LGBT, but to embrace them as wondrous creations of God themselves. Uh, since losing her son, Tyler, her spiritual journey has continued to carry and transform her in ways she never would have imagined. She has spoken out in support of LGBT rights and the need for families and communities to embrace their LGBT populations. She has spoken before the US Congressional HELP Committee, the National Cathedral, and numerous other faith communities, colleges, universities, high schools, and workplaces. And Jane, it is really an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's some introduction to live up to. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> well, it seems like your life has made it the bare minimum, I could say. And so uh, thank you so much. Um, I think what makes sense, if you don't mind, is to give our listeners a little bit of background, and then we'll move into the uh, work of your foundation. What, what were the circumstances that led to the creation of the Tyler Clemente Foundation? Yes. So we started the Tyler Clemente Foundation to honor our son, Tyler, and to find resources and to find solutions and action steps that would have helped Tyler in the situation that he was in. And for those of you who might not remember, uh, 10 years ago, Tyler started uh, Rutgers as an incoming freshman, and he became the target of a cyberbullying situation. His roommate set up a camera and live streamed him in a sexual encounter with another man. And then he posted on social media, inviting many other people to come in and join and watch. Um, and, and also commented with jokes. And Tyler continued to read those jokes on social media and his reality spiraled out of control. And he made what we call a permanent decision to a temporary situation. Um, and he became very isolated and withdrawn and lonely. And within a few short hours, really days, um, Tyler unfortunately made that decision and he died by suicide. It was September 22nd, 2010. So it was almost a little over 10 years ago um, when he was only 18 years old. And that's why Joe and I set up the foundation. We do believe that Tyler was targeted because of his sexual orientation. So that's why even though our organization does not focus only on LGBTQ issues, our mission is to put an end to all online and offline bullying in schools, workplaces, and faith communities. But with that said, uh, we do have to recognize the fact that many surveys and polls and research shows that the LGBT community is targeted more often than um, their counterparts. And we also recognize the fact that that is such a big part of who Tyler was and why his situation unfolded. Jane, I, you know, certainly speaking as a parent and someone who's worked in this area, I, I have a lot of admiration for the way uh, you've taken this loss and tried to turn it into something positive for other people. We met in 2011, as I said earlier, and that actually was the culmination of my work on my first Cybertraps book, The Cybertraps for the Young. And I remember following 
the incident with your son and the aftermath of that. Um, in terms of, of setting up and, and creating the foundation, um, how, how did you find that process? Was it difficult? I mean, it must have been a very fraught time for you. <laughs> it was an interesting. It's hard to look back because I can't even remember most of the steps. And I, I view it as a person of faith. I do believe it was just kind of ordained and serendipitous. And many, many good people came around us and supported us. Um, and I'm not sure that we would have even thought to start an organization, except we did raise a lot of media attention. Tyler's story for some reason garnered lots and lots of media attention. And it was like, well, what can we do with that attention? You know, how can we use it for good? And that that's really, it was really more about the media than about using Tyler's story per se, um, because sadly this has happened, similar situations have happened to many, many people. Um, and they have not for some reason, I mean, maybe a little blip of attention, but Tyler's story, people just seemed really connected to it for a very long time. And I, everywhere I've traveled, people say, oh, I remember Tyler's story. And I, I, you know, I connected with it so much, but to be truthful, when I listen to their stories, they're probably not at all similar to Tyler's story, but the one commonality that I can connect with is the pain and the shame and the humiliation, the emotional toil that bullying has on a person. Um, and whatever their situation was, it had that same hor horrific inner pain that Tyler experienced. And for that, there was that connection. Well, that makes sense. I, I, in, I guess in answer to your implicit question, having, you know, I remember following this, that that the driving circumstances would have been really the novelty of what was done to your son um, at the time that this incident occurred. We weren't experienced as a society with streaming video and putting content, live content online and things like that. It was unfortunately a very novel way to cyber bully someone. And then of course the implicit intimacy of it. And then the last piece of it is that it had the misfortune of happening in the New York media market, which as I'm sure you're well aware is just a shark pit of, of attention. So that, that I think contributed a lot to it. Can you talk a little bit about the response of the university? How did you find them to be helpful or were there things you took away from dealing with them that other parents should think about? Rutgers University was very uh, quick to respond. They were very helpful to us um, in those early hours, making sure that we were taken care of to be able to get to the campus, to get on, on the campus, to remove Tyler's belongings before any press knew what was happening at all. So they were very concerned with our well-being and making sure that the fam our family was protected. In months to come, we engaged in a really healthy conversation about how we could partner together to make it better and make something positive out of the situation. So they were right on board right from the beginning. Um, we did do have a memorandum of understanding and we have created a Tyler Clementi Center at Rutgers, which is working on um, 
research. Um, it's taken a few spins and turns over the last 10 years, and it's probably a little bit on hiatus with COVID. Things are not quite the same as they have been, but uh, we do expect for great things to come out of that the center as they have already. They've done a few uh, conferences. They've sponsored um, LGBTQ research um, with other partners, and um, I am very positive about that um, outcome. Plus they did some initial internal changes because of Tyler's situation. And there were many, many changes and I wouldn't even be able to enumerate all of them with housing and on-campus student life and resources. They partnered with us in doing a day one initiative um, a few years back and they read the day one script to incoming freshmen. They partnered with Chegg and us and um, creating little safety boxes that gave cyber awareness as well as physical things that might be comforting so that it would intrigue the freshmen to open up the boxes and get and read the information. Um, and the biggest safety that I think was using the digital world for the good that it was created. And that is that after 20, I'm thinking 12 or 13 maybe, all incoming freshmen, I believe ask a or asked a question if you are LGBTQ friendly and those friendly people are matched together and unfriendly people are matched together. Um, and they, that question using the technology that's available is discarded. It's not held in your record. It's not reported to family. It's just a question of matching people because I do think that if that had been implemented for Tyler, he would not have had that roommate. So that roommate would not have had used the technology against Tyler. I just want to repeat what you said, that technology was cutting edge at the time. You know, we didn't even have iPhones. You have to remember this was 2010. Um, and certainly we didn't know any much about Zoom or FaceTime. That was all just starting. Um, and the idea that you could send out a message on, you know, social media or text and help people you know, it's, you know, FaceTime me and it'll turn on the, the camera. That was cutting edge. That was not a norm. You know, we wouldn't have known to look to see if there's a green light on, on your computer at the time. And why would somebody face a computer to, towards your bed and things like that? We wouldn't even think about those things that at that time. Yeah. And, and those are things that everybody should be paying attention to now. And, you know, just thinking like, where are there cameras around? Where are there phones around? And assume that in that things that we are doing could be shared and broadcast. And so I want to uh, uh, approach the idea of, you know, this, this question about, are you uh, LGBT friendly? And that seems like it could be a, a hot point for some people that they could feel like that's an invasion of privacy or something like that. Um, but what I appreciate is what you said about that, that it is, it's not kept or reported to anybody or anything like that. It's just to make sure that people are connecting with people that they can feel safe with. And, and I think that those kinds of things using, using technology in a, in a positive way to get that information. And, you know, we talk a lot about how once something is recorded on the internet, then it actually doesn't go away. And so that may be the case and that, you know, that's not asking anybody to disclose anything, but it is getting a perspective, which I think is important. And, and that idea of if you 
if that question would have been asked with Tyler, then he probably wouldn't have been assigned to that roommate. And that in hindsight sounds like a really great idea and, and wonderful, but there are so many of those decisions that happen. Um, and I, what I appreciate is how you've, how you've used technology to get your story out and explain what happened. What has made it possible for you to share that story in a positive way that is helpful to you and helpful to other families who could be experiencing something like this? Sure. What made it possible? To well, me- l- let me rephrase that question a little bit because yeah. um, some people would have a situation like this. And even with the media attention, they would close up and not be interested in talking about it at all. On the other hand, you went out and created a foundation and said, we're going to make sure we're talking about this a lot. And so uh, especially people from a Christian background, they could be very ashamed by their son's choice to engage in homosexual activity. And that could be a huge blow to their family. And they could basically just push it under the rug. That's not what you did. That's what I'm asking. How did you, how did you know that was the right thing to do to, to continue supporting your son even after his death? Right. So there are a couple things that helped me move forward. One is we didn't do it right away. You must understand this did take time because initially I was in a deep, deep fog and just empty and shattered and could not even speak. So the basic minimum was um, people came to us and said this would make a great organization. You need to move forward. And the best I could do was just say yes and nod my head. And Joe was much more alert at the time, and he took the ball from there initially. But one of the basic things that must be known and must be put out there is that I couldn't help Tyler. I felt really horrible that he didn't come to us to allow us to help him. But I have three sons, as as you read in the introduction, and my older son is gay as well. And at this point that we were talking about starting the foundation, it was for me to make sure that my older son was protected. Um, and I couldn't let anyone harm him and or anyone else because of their LGBT or their sexual orientation or their LGBT, the fact that they're part of the LGBTQ community. Um, and for me, I needed to make sure of that. Um, I also did need to do some research and, and find my way in that as well, because as a person of faith, I needed to feel comfortable and confident about speaking into this space. So there was a lot of information I needed to gather because it wasn't even something on my rainbow or in in my head at all. Even though I was completely surprised, I can relate to parents on all ends because I was very surprised when Tyler came out. He came out just a few hours before leaving for school. But for years, I was processing my older son coming out who didn't come out until after Tyler's uh, death. So I, I relate to parents who are surprised by their child coming out. And I relate to parents who were like, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for this. But for some reason, I was able, I think maybe because my faith was very, very small at the time of Tyler's passing, that I could compartmentalize myself and I wasn't fully anything, (laughs) you know, I was loving to my children and embracing, but I, I was also claiming to be a Christian and not really realizing what that meant. But for some reason, after my world 
collapsed and crashed, I knew as I put the pieces together, I had to have an answer for people, especially if it was going to be public. Uh, it wasn't just something that I could just sit with internally. I had to be able to verbalize it. So I needed to do some, some searching for sure. And I had a lot of help in that as well. It sounds uh, like honestly quite an amazing journey and, and one that seems to have been cathartic in, in many ways for you, uh, which I, I think is, is a nice byproduct of doing some of this work, as painful as it must be. I, one of the things I'd like to ask you about is that I know that the Clemente Foundation uh, puts a lot of emphasis on, on helping kids to become upstanders for their peers. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and maybe in the context of, of one specific question, which is when Tyler uh, w discovered that he was being live streamed, were there people who spoke out for him? I mean, may, obviously not enough, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, and that's exactly why we went, our very first initiative was in creating an upstander pledge and making sure that people knew that they had the power to intervene. Because one of the things that we learned early on in learning about bullying is that there are a lot of bystanders and people remain passive bystanders. And silence is the same as condoning a, a negative behavior. I, I knew from the very beginning. Um, and when we were hearing about the um, people, the number of people who had seen what had happened to Tyler, what was really shocking to me was that no one spoke up. To my knowledge, no one reported it to, to an authority person at Rutgers. No one intervened in the situation and said, hey, this isn't cool. Let's turn this off. Let's shut this down. You know, you shouldn't do this. Um, and no one, to our knowledge, reached out to Tyler. No one came forward afterwards and said, you know, we saw this happening and we talked with Tyler. So that was why we started um, the upstander. Initially, being an upstander was intervening in and interrupting in a bullying situation so that you could either, and you could do it multiple ways because we never ever want anyone to come into harm's way. So if you can interrupt it by intervening at the time, even if it's simple saying, calling out, hey, you know, this isn't cool. I d we don't use homophobic slurs. We don't use racial slurs. But it's also about just maybe even coming beside the, the person that's being targeted and saying, hey, let's go to this space, you know? Or if that doesn't work or if you don't feel safe or that doesn't change the behavior, it's about making sure you report it. And when bullying happens in the digital world, it's easy. You need to report it to the platform. Most platforms have mechanisms to report abusive behavior and aggressive behavior. And reporting it if it happens in um, a school environment or some other type of community, reporting it to a trusted adult. And the most important, I think, is reaching out to the target and intervening, making sure they feel that they're not alone. They make sure that they know they're not alone. Make sure that they know where their resources are. Um, I think that may make all the difference in Tyler's situation. Um, but then we've, we've taken that being an upstander and kind of spread it out and making sure that because bullying doesn't just happen in the schoolyard or in the classroom, it happens, you know, in the digital world. So you can be an upstander in the digital world as well. And it also happens through legislation. You know, when one group is given uh, rights and privileges over another group. That's a form of bullying, I believe. And in 
faith communities, which is our other pillar that we work in. When one group is um, targeted or when there are teachings and traditions of dogma and bias that discriminate against someone else and cause severe pain and shame and humiliation, that I too believe is a form of bullying, which is why we also work in faith communities as well. Yeah. And, you know, I want to address that piece a little bit of, of how to support someone who has been through something like this. And it just is shocking to me that, that you didn't hear about anybody reaching out to Tyler after they saw it. That just breaks my heart because so many times we think, well, I don't want to talk about this because I don't want them to know that I was, you know, watching it or to be, uh, embarrassed that that I did see it or that I know about it when I am sure, as with most things like this, that everybody on campus knew that this was going on. And yeah, I don't know about everyone. <laughs> not everyone, probably. But afterwards, everyone, but not at right. the time. Well, and it's the kind of thing where people talk about this kind of stuff. And and it's, it's tragic to hear that nobody reached out to Tyler for support, that nobody did that. How would you recommend someone do that? in a respectful way that um, allows that person to feel supported and heard because people don't know how to, how to talk about those kinds of things. You know, I think it's just a simple conversation. I mean, I don't think it's, it, it, sometimes we make things bigger in our head than, right. than they really are, which is what's worth, what's probably the number one reason about cyberbullying, which makes it such so much more difficult to overcome than an in-person situation because we make things bigger. And I think it's just about starting conversations and saying, you know, I, I was part, I, I heard about this. I, I received this text and I'm not, I didn't log in, but you know, know that this is happening and know that there are resources and there is a crisis center at, at on campus. And, you know, maybe we should go together. I will walk over with you that those kinds of things really supporting someone. I think it's, it's sometimes simpler than it seems and also, sometimes it's not only the fact that it's a hard conversation to have, but sometimes it's almost like a phenomenon. The more people that see something happening, the less likely somebody is to be an upstander because everyone thinks it's somebody else's responsibility or, you know, they will do it. And I don't want to come into harm's way, you know, and I don't want to be the target of that bullying. Um, and that's why not only reaching out to that person, but reporting it to a trusted adult and bringing mm. it an adult into the situation is probably one of the biggest key components uh, for any young person that's seeing something happening. Yeah, those are such poignant points. Thank you so much. And Jane, I guess one of the things that I would ask is, um, given your experience and the work that you've been doing, would you say that the, the safety mechanisms that are out there are better now than they were a decade ago? What, what positive changes have you seen or are there still things we need to do? I do think there has been some change and some positivity has happened because mostly around conversations which were started in the fall of 2010 from, because of Tyler's story as well as that fall there were several other um, sort of high profile so to speak suicides so to speak. So there has been lots of conversation. But unfortunately, I think we do 
need much more work. Um, I think, unfortunately, in the last four years, we are a nonprofit, and I don't like to speak politically, but I think somehow negative, especially cyber um, negative behavior has been normalized. The negative harmful behavior has been normalized, and we need to keep talking and keep shouting about it. And it's not just one organization, it's lots of organizations. We have to normalize good behavior and we have to support and um, compliment good behavior. You know, sometimes some people attack or um, try to combat this kind of behavior by targeting the aggressor, but sometimes it's about creating a culture of kindness. You know, one of the schools that I spoke at, their, their philosophy is, uh, giving positive uh, recognition and to good behavior. And that's an important part of the aspect too. I mean, everybody is a different, unique individual for sure. And there's lots of voices that speak differently to different people, which is why I think we need to have different ways to combat negative bullying behaviors. And, and legislation is certainly a component of that, you know, some people need those boundaries. Other people need to have their hearts and minds changed. And in order to really see a change, I think we do need um, to change hearts and minds. We do have a piece of legislation um, talking about bills. There is a Tyler Clementi Higher Education Anti-Harassment Act, which uh, speaks to colleges and universities and creating policies and as well as resource networks for their students and policies for their students against harassment. And there, it, in the most recent time it was entered into uh, Congress, which was two years ago, so it's time to re-enter it because it hasn't passed yet. Um, and there was a component for um, cyber safety as well in the digital world. So that the, that's an important aspect as well. So maybe it will get reintroduced soon. It was reintroduced two years ago. It was first reintroduced right after Tyler's passing by our then Senator Lautenberg at the time in New Jersey. Um, And now it's been reintroduced by different members of Congress. And the last time it was Senator Murray and Senator Baldwin in the Senate. I will uh, definitely do a little bit of research on that because that's the kind of thing that fascinates me. Let me ask you uh, one final question before we uh, kind of bring things to a close. Uh, To what extent have you worked with the major tech companies? How have they responded to the things you're trying to do and, and what do you think they should be doing? So we've reached out um, and haven't had much response back from the tech companies. I think they think they understand their platforms better. I'm not sure, but there certainly needs to be a better mechanism to report abusive behavior and to to close it down. Of course, there is this little issue of First Amendment rights that is a very delicate issue. Um, And I'm all for my protection of rights, but uh, to speak and to share my, my feelings Uh, But I think we have to make sure um, that we don't tear someone down in sharing our rights. I think we need to learn to have healthy conversations around the issues and not destroy someone's character as we are discussing the sides to an issue. And um, which is why I'm not so sure um, the platforms 
responsibility so much as teaching people, you know, and changing those hearts and minds. It's about making sure we, we teach our young people to behave in the digital world as we do in person. If we can't say it to their eyes and see the pain that your words are inflicting, you shouldn't be sent saying those words. Um, one of the things I always like to say is that whenever you write a text or an email to, to take a minute and just pause, take a breath and reread it before you hit that send button. Um, and if it is building someone up and encouraging them, then send it out into the world. But if it's tearing someone down and destroying someone, um, I would hope that you would rewrite it or maybe just discard it altogether. Um, I think we need to have work and help from those tech companies, but we also just need to teach our young people how to behave in the digital world. This is a new world, right? I mean, it's the wild west of their generation. And we don't just give the car keys to a five-year-old and say, here, see what you can do with it. You know, and I think that's why parents need to partner with their young youth and their, their children and, and teach them and model good behavior in the digital world and help them along, cultivate their skill set as well. Well, Jane, yeah. these are all sentiments that resonate deeply with both of us. It's a good part of the reason we're doing this podcast. And I really, again, appreciate you taking the time to come talk with us and hopefully we can help spread the word about the work that you're doing and, and the kinds of things that we're all trying to achieve for our society. I will say that people should definitely visit uh, tylerclementi.org and look at some of the resources there. I especially recommend that people take a look at the hashtag day one project that you've put together. There's some great resources there. And uh, just whatever we can do to support the work you're doing, we're happy to do that. Great, thank you. And I hope that people use the digital world for good, which for us is also to like us on social media, our social media platforms. We use Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and, and follow us and reshare our messages to amplify good in the world. Well, we certainly will do that. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, bullying and harassment, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have really enjoyed this podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends. We appreciate having you join us today and look forward to our next episode of the Cybertraps podcast. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com/be to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. 
That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.